Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in History, a channel of New Books Network. I'm your host, Chris Babbitts. Today's guest is Benjamin E. Park, the author of Kingdom of Nauvoo, The Rise and Fall of a Religious Empire on the American Frontier, published by Norton. As Ben observes in Kingdom of Nauvoo, like colonial Williamsburg, Nauvoo today offers only a partial view of the city's true history. Its beautiful brick homes distract from the reality that In the 1840s, Nauvoo predominantly consisted of dirty wooden shacks. Its self-presentation as a pilgrimage destination and as a necessary intermediate stop on the way to Utah belies the fact that the Mormons under Joseph Smith had wanted to build their kingdom on the Mississippi. Our conversation today is part of understanding how Nauvoo is a central part of Latter-day Saint history. Thank you so much for being with us, Ben. Glad to be here, Chris. To get things started, could you tell our listeners a little little bit about yourself? Yeah, I am an assistant professor of history, focusing particularly on American religious history, early America, uh, and the revolution. Uh, My first book was on American nationalism's Imagining Union in the Age of Revolution, published with Cambridge University Press. Um, And then I turned my attention to Mormon Nauvoo, uh, and I just finished this book, Kingdom of Nauvoo. Um, I'm also the co-editor of a journal, uh, Mormon Studies Review. Wonderful. Okay, let's dive into things. Joseph Smith experienced his first visions in the burned-over district of New York in the early 1820s. But most of your book, Kingdom of Nauvoo, covers Mormon history from the late 1830s to the mid-1840s. What's essential for readers to know That explains how Joseph Smith and his fathers got from upstate New York to their settlement at Nauvoo in Illinois. I think there are two traditions that are established from the very beginning of Mormonism that are crucial to understanding how they ended up in Illinois. First, uh, the radical vision of Joseph Smith, where he established a new church that in many ways was a break off of Christianity, like Christianity was a break off of Judaism. Much of the same uh, religious framework is still there, but lots of new religious innovations, including having a prophet, uh, new uh, scriptural texts, uh, revelations, uh, the doctrine of gathering, so everyone will gather together. But that last doctrine, especially where lots of Latter-day Saints would gather together in one place, proved to be quite a challenge when it comes to actually setting up a a local uh, religious community. Because If you set up a hub of this new radical fringe religion, neighbors are going to look askance at the new church. They're going to be worried about their new neighbors. They're going to fear that they won't fit within the community nor be good participants in uh, democratic culture. So at every place the Mormons go early on, whether it's New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio, or Missouri, they face very strong opposition. And in the last place, Missouri, it was especially acute. Um, In 1838, the Mormons and their neighbors got in such a large conflict that this ends up being called 
the Missouri-Mormon War uh, that resulted in casualties on both sides, a state-sanctioned mob kicking the Mormons out of the state, and even the governor, Lilburn Boggs, issuing an executive er order that declared the Mormons as as, uh, enemies of the state who must either be exterminated or driven from the state's boundaries. So I think it's an important note that by the time the Mormons arrive in Illinois, they are, one, rooted in their new radical ideas, but two, used to a, a pretty fervent opposition that they've been facing from the very beginning. That's wonderful. Uh, Joseph Smith did want to prevent some of the same things from happening in Missouri from happening again in Illinois. What steps did Smith take in Nauvoo's emerging city limits to keep the saints safe? And how did these Mormon or how did non-Mormons interpret these measures? Yeah, so their primary goal when they settle in Illinois was to avoid whatever just took pl- hap- whatever just took place in Missouri. They wanted to make sure that they had a strong response, that they were ensconced in the political climate, that they had a firm defense as well. So they went through a number of different routes. One, they befriended the state political parties, both the Whigs and the Democratic parties at the time, were anxious to help the Mormons because Illinois was about evenly split between the two political parties. So the incoming saints and their thousands of votes uh, could be potentially decisive in the upcoming and very important elections. Um, So the Mormons took advantage of this and they wanted to keep politicians on their side so they would court the politicians' attention in return for promising them thousands of votes. Uh, This practice we typically refer to as block voting. In the saints' mind, this was the best way to efficiently uh, cull the favor of the politicians around them and make sure that they could keep the the politicians' interests as opposed to building enemies like they have in Missouri. But they also wanted to establish a form of self-sufficiency. So they they proposed a city charter that granted uh, Nauvoo immense political and legal power. In fact, what they basically did is they took the most radical provisions of all the city charters that had been passed in Illinois over the previous few years, took those most radical provisions, threw them together, passed that as a city charter because, again, the politicians were anxious to curry Mormon favor. And then they interpreted the city charter charter in very broad ways to where they saw Nauvoo not just as a city, but basically as a city state. Um, Another way that they tried to uh, avoid the problems of the past is they realized that if things come to blows, if, if, uh, if events turn to violence, once again, they want to be prepared. So one of the things that the city charter granted them was to establish a city militia that they called the Nauvoo Legion. And all adult men who resided within the city's boundaries were required to serve in this legion who, while it was theoretically a part of the state legion, um, for all intents and purposes was under city control. So the end result of all these preparations is what you had a city that had immense political and legal power and a militia at their disposal, this militia larger than the state standing militia, by the way, and also a voting system that both assured politicians had to pay attention to them, but was also destined to draw the ire of their neighbors. I have a follow-up question about the Legion, um, because you know, in this period of, of time, militia culture is much more alive than it is today. Today, it's seen as a fringe culture of the far right. Uh, was it the size of the legion that really scared the neighbors ultimately? Was it the religious connection? What was there with the legion that made it seem 
a little bit more dangerous maybe than uh, other militias? The answer to your questions is yes. Um, because the size of the legion was important in its own right. There were, by 1844, by the time Joseph Smith was killed, there were about 3,000 men who could uh, participate in the legion at any time. That's just a little less than half of the American standing army at the time. And it's also much larger than the state standing army. So just the numbers itself were quite substantial. But further than that, in the eyes of those who were worried about Nauvoo, it was a religious connotation. You had a legion with 3,000 armed men, and they were armed pretty well due to their political connections, at the disposal of what they saw as a religious fanatical tyrant leader who could lead them into the war, a, a holy battle. In fact, one of the uh, descriptions that people would often use for Joseph Smith during this period was a Mohammedan, which was a anti-Islamic remark that draws on this tradition of seeing Muhammad as this violent religious leader leading armed zealots and fighting civilization. And so that was a major threat uh, in the eyes of Nauvoo's neighbors. Fascinating. Um, moving on, I was really, uh, really interested in the contradictory views and experiences that Smith and other LDS leaders had with Jacksonian politics. On the one hand, they took advantage of universal white male suffrage, as you, you've hinted at already, and exercised uh, considerable political power in Illinois. On the other hand, the Saints found themselves at odds with state and federal officials. What are a couple of examples from your book that you think highlight Mormon engagement or disengagement from the politics of the Jacksonian era? Yeah, so I think the biggest uh, contradiction or paradox in Mormon political involvement came in Joseph Smith's final uh, six months before he was killed. Because in January of 1844, by that point, the saints had burned bridges with state political parties and were worried that they could no longer rely on the state for support. And they turned their attention to the federal government for appeals. And they petitioned the federal government to do a number of things. And the federal government uh, was not interested in, in going at the whims of the Mormon petitions. Uh, and then Joseph Smith decided to run as president um, in January of 1844, making the decision and then announcing it as, as a public declaration the next month. And when Joseph Smith ran for president, um, it seems uh, radical and perhaps laughable in some modern eyes, but I saw in it this vibrant expression of this Jacksonian democratic optimism that this outsider like Smith could be able to gain traction on the national stage. And the Mormons took it seriously. And one of the things that really stood out to me was how organized their political involvement was surrounding Joe Smith's campaign. They sent out uh, people to all the different states and they were going to hold state electoral conventions that were going to culminate in a national convention that took place in Baltimore. All of this, remember, is only about a decade removed from state political parties being really created in the second party system in the first place. Um, we did not have a national political convention until a decade before Nauvoo. And so when Joseph Smith decides to run for president, this isn't just this haphazard affair. <clears throat> this is a systematic, organized party system process that shows that even the Mormons on the fringes of society felt that to be able to have any political uh, success, they're going to have to follow this new party system. Now, at the same time, that Joseph Smith is running for the American presidency, he's also established a secret 
clandestine council, a council known as the Council of Fifty, that in their own words envisioned establishing a theocratic kingdom. Now, there are few things as uh, uh, oppositional to the American democratic principles than establishing a theocratic kingdom. But in Joseph Smith's mind, those two things work together. Either he would be able to gain political success, and even if he was an elected president, gain national sympathy and be able to uh, uh, gather support from the political parties, or it was time for God's voice to restore order to the realm of humanity. And I find that dichotomous approach as the democratic president, uh, democratically elected president based on party politics or the theocratic kingdom that you see this, these paradoxical impulses within Mormonism come to fruition. I thought it was particularly fascinating before uh, Smith runs for president to see not only this block voting, but to see very familiar characters that we have and uh, we would encounter in any or teach about in any American history survey course. You know, Abraham Lincoln uh, is referenced sometimes, but Stephen Douglas is is, is very much a, a central character early in these these Mormon politics, right? So Stephen A. Douglas is definitely one of the most fascinating figures in the book because he's not only present but deeply involved. He's one of the early politicians who, when the saints arrive in Illinois, uh, actively courts them to his party, the Democratic Party. He visits Nauvoo several times. When Joseph Smith is arrested for a charge that's going to extradite him to Missouri, Stephen A. Douglas encourages him to bring him to, to bring the charge to his court, where he uh, dis- grants him a writ of habeas corpus. Even as late as 1844, when the Mormons are proposing some of their most radical solutions, including raising an army of 100,000 men uh, with Joseph Smith at the head, Stephen A. Douglas says, this is a great idea. I'll serve as your new territorial governor out in the Western Empire. Uh, So I think we get uh, a picture not just of the Mormons, but just all the politicians on the frontier, including Stephen A. Douglas, who are ambitious uh, aspiring, pragmatic, and perhaps a bit more difficult to fully capture than traditional narratives allow. I found all of this really fascinating. Um, but also you identify Nauvoo as a religious empire, both in your subtitle and many parts of your book. Uh, as you know, as you probably were using this, this is a loaded term. So I was wondering how you interpret Nauvoo as an imperial project. Yeah, it's a good question. I use it for uh, two reasons. One, it's the term that both Mormons and non-Mormons use, though for different aims. Uh, The Mormons, they had broad expansion visions for what they were going to do. This is going to be God's uh, voice restoring stability and order to a chaotic world. And empire was a good way to capture that. Um, At the same time, uh, non-Mormons looked at uh, Nauvoo and they use the term empire to emphasize its incongruity with the broader society, saying that what they're doing in Nauvoo does not mesh within a democratic republic. And therefore, we are using the term to distance ourselves from what the Mormons are doing. But uh, methodologically speaking, I also use the term empire because of the rich historiographical literature that sees empire as not just uh, the expansion of boundaries, although it certainly is that but also the way that it installs a sense of rule, of order, and especially colonization, because Mormonism in Nauvoo definitely has colonizationist aims. And I talk about 
how that this leads into patriarchal views with polygamy, but also with racial views and how they treat Native Americans and African Americans. So I think those two uh, different realms I try to blend together and using a term like religious empire. You you started mentioning uh, patriarchal views, so that is a great um, segue into the next question, because in Kingdom of Nauvoo, you explore issues of gender and sexuality in what I think are particularly novel and intriguing ways. Mormon plural marriages began in Nauvoo, and Smith started the practice for fascinating re- reasons. Could you please explain early Mormon thoughts on gender, the family, and the afterlife, and how plural marriages fit in early LDS religious thought and cosmology? Yeah, when Joseph Smith introduces the doctrine of polygamy in 1840 and 1841, I think the cultural context is is quite significant. As I mentioned earlier, they had just left a very traumatic uh, experience in Missouri where families were quite literally ripped apart. And so when they're envisioning heaven in Nauvoo, in this very united, consolidated, uh, firmly entrenched sense that would be able to supersede any opposition and division. These doctrines of sealings, which was the the terminology they used to blend people together and forge unions that could last the eternities, um, this becomes quite central to the LDS tradition. Um, They talk about people who die before being baptized, being able to receive uh, uh, that ritual through a vicarious practice. Uh, But Joseph Smith also starts teaching ideas of the family as a communal salvation rather than individual salvation. Um, So you get a communal aspect of everyone being tied together at the same time that Joseph Smith is preaching that the democratic culture and society of America has failed. It's left too many people vulnerable. It's brought too much anarchic aspects. We We need to be able to install some type of hierarchical authority. Polygamy fits within these different brands of thinking. On the one hand, it's able to unite families together in a way that's going to offer some form of of stability so that no matter what happens in the future, these families are going to be forged together and that forging is going to last all the way into the heavens. And secondly, when looking at the chaos of the world around us and the domestic family and the home and the, and the heart that seem to be falling apart due to a society spinning out of control, patriarchal polygamy is going to restore a sense of God's voice, a sense of this hierarchical structure that can grant everyone their place within the broader kingdom. At least those are the types of, of justifications I see, not just from Joe Smith, but also the women who enter this, uh, this polygamy. Uh, plural system. And so I think it's it, it's important to note that the same arguments that the Mormons are using to critique the political society, that democracy had resulted in chaos, is in many ways the same language that's being used to explain their polygamous experiment, that too much uh, chaos is going on and this polygamy is going to bring everything back to order. A central feature within this polygamous order, or at least some uh, pushback against it, is Joseph Smith's wife, herself, Emma. Um, and, and she takes on the LDS male leadership uh, when they start talking about these spiritual wives. Were there parts of Mormon women's political and spiritual activism that struck you as particularly crucial to understanding the history of Nauvoo? Yeah. When researching this book, I quickly realized that the story cannot be 
fully understood without placing women at the center, not just acknowledging their presence and doing things like establishing a women's relief study, but seeing how the women actually drove the narrative. And uh, as a result, we're able to uh, exercise uh, forms of power that you rarely see in antebellum America. So for instance, in 1842, when the women organized what comes to be known as the Relief Society of Nauvoo, this women's organization that originally was meant to provide uh, food for the hungry and clothing for the naked, um, very soon garnered much stronger political power. They were tasked with cleansing the society from sin, with dictating a sense of morality that all saints were supposed to follow, and especially to intervene when there are political crises involving their prophet Joe Smith. So when Joe Smith is arrested on numerous occasions, it's the Relief Society who write petitions to the governor, who go meet with state officials, who uh, organize uh, meetings with politicians so that they can be able to express their views. Um, so to such a degree that I find power being wielded in, by women in Nauvoo in very innovative ways that I don't see elsewhere in 19th century. Now, of course, I don't want to go and say that these are proto-feminists who, uh, because, I mean, at the same time, they're practicing polygamy, which many would see as a patriarchal and, and, and backwards practice. But to the Mormons, they saw these two things in tandem. And for a while, uh, Joseph Smith, pleased with the work that women were, were doing at his behalf, granted them a space within Nauvoo to flex their political muscles. And so for, a, for about a half a year in Nauvoo, women were involved in the most powerful council that's making the decisions concerning the church and the city. However, Emma Smith, as Joe Smith's husband, was never fully on board with the polygamous project. She probably didn't know the full details except for a few occasions when she was able to get it out of Joe Smith. And so there are frequent uh, moments of, of stark crisis in the Smith household. At one point, this resulted in a series of public meetings in which Emma Smith uh, denounced in front of thousands of gathered saints the polygamous doctrine, which led Joseph Smith to disband the Relief Society and it cut back on the power that women wielded in Nauvoo. He was happy at first to grant women this, this authoritative position uh, when they were protecting his interests, but when they came in conflict, he, he might have come to regret his decision. So what I see fascinating in Nauvoo is that the, the move for women grant, gaining more authority is not a straightforward teleological mo- uh, movement toward inclusion and, and involvement, but rather a topsy-turvy back-and-forth uh, uh, trajectory that depended on different circumstances and personalities. I really love the parts of the book about Emma. Um, what I know about Emma Smith is mostly for what I've learned from the Church History Museum in Salt Lake City. So I was really interested to see how she uh, exercises agency and power within this emerging political structure and system that uh, her husband uh, provides women uh, and how she really runs with that. I thought that was particularly well done throughout the book. Well, thank you. Um, one of the other things I always think about whenever I pick up a book like Kingdom of Nauvoo is, why wasn't this written earlier? Um, and that, that always is, is something that I'm thinking about. But the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints did make available some crucial sources that facilitated the writing of Kingdom of Nauvoo. What were these sources and how did they help you provide a new interpretation of Mormon history? Yeah, the clandestine council I mentioned before, the Council of Fifty. Um, when it was organized in March of 1844, they knew from the beginning that the contents from their 
discussions and their meetings could be seen as not only salacious, but treasonous to outside observers. And so they did all they could to hide the minutes um, from those meetings, uh, trying very hard not to let them fall into external hands. And that continued all the way to the present. So where once the saints left Nauvoo in 1846, they took the minutes with them, but then they kept them in, in strict confidence. And uh, the first frenzy, the governing council of the church, kept them in their vault, a, a literal vault held in the first frenzy office that would not allow any faithful or critical scholar to have any access to them. Uh, luckily for historians in 2013, um, the LDS church announced that they were going to make those available for the first time and not just make them available, but publish them as a volume in the excellent Joseph Papers project. Uh, that volume finally appeared in 2016, much to the delight of people who have been yearning to see these minutes for, for decades. Um, and whereas a lot of people were a bit disappointed in the minutes, they were not as salacious as, as some people assumed they might be. Um, for me as a historian, I looked at those and I saw the most potent expression of democratic discontent in antebellum America, with, which while perhaps the most radical expression, it was still an expression of broader cultural uh, sentiments that I felt there's a larger story here. So when those minutes were published in 2016, I decided this needs to be a, a history that can finally be written, uh, and I decided to embark on it. Wonderful. Is there anything else that you think readers should know before they pick up Kingdom of Nauvoo? Yeah, I think there's an unfortunate uh, tradition of viewing Mormon history as exceptional, meaning outside the typical mainstream. Those outside the LDS faith see the Mormons as these odd, quixotic uh, fellows who uh, have a weird history that does not really fit the broader American story. And those within the LDS faith typically see Nauvoo as their history and separate from the ungodly uh, mainstream culture. But what I try to do in Kingdom of Nauvoo is to show that Mormon history and the story of Nauvoo more broadly is an American history that there are broader lessons for everyone, not just those who are Mormon or not just those who are only interested in Mormonism, but those who are interested in how America has operated and especially how America has handled religious pluralism and has handled democratic rule. Because while we today in the 21st century take democracy for granted that our democratic system is the best system in the world and the only solution to any problems we have is to embrace more democratic principles, um, the story of Nauvoo shows that that hasn't always been the case, that democracy was an experiment. And so to better understand where the system fell apart can tell us a lot about the history that has even brought us to today. Well, Ben, it's been a pleasure getting to chat about Kingdom of Nauvoo and to learn more about this important part of Latter-day Saint history. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's absolutely my pleasure, Chris. Everyone else, head to the Norton website to purchase a copy of Ben's Kingdom of Nauvoo. And thank you to our listeners for joining us today at New Books in History, a channel of New Books Network. I'm Chris Babbitts, wishing you the best as you engage with cutting-edge works of history.